0: Our Lord, you taught us in your word that where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. And you are the treasure of the hearts of your people, and even though we may be distracted at times, you so graciously bring us to repentance and restore in us those longing affections for you, and we ask that you would do that. You indeed are worthy of all. You're worthy of losing everything because in you we gain everything more than we could ever lose by an infinite degree. So I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us in the way of righteousness, that you would, by your Spirit, cause us to hear your voice, to respond and obey as your children, and ultimately to the end, as you direct us this morning, that we would love one another. To this end, we pray in your name, Jesus, amen. Well, I want to begin just by thanking those who have uh, been up here for the last uh, three weeks, who have uh, so powerfully and wonderfully uh, brought us God's word. Let's see, Tim Alvaso, he's not here, I don't think. Well, Tim Alvaso, Joe, last week with the two ways uh, in which to live, and then John Spring uh, with Luke 15 and looking at the Father's heart and the repentant child. And so thank you, each of you. Uh, for opening up God's Word, and I was uh, only be able to hear Joe, but uh, it was a great blessing to my soul, as I know yours as well. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles now. That to First Peter, the book, uh, the letter of First Peter, which is where we'll return, as we've been there for several—I don't know, maybe three months. Uh, we've been in it so far. We are going to try to wrap this up by the end of the year. For those of you who are wondering, we won't have uh, eight years in the Epistle of First Peter. Although I'm tempted to do that because it's so dense and rich with theology and with glory and the wonder of the cross. But open up your, your Bibles this morning to verses 22 and 25, which is, will take our attention uh, for this morning. Now it's appropriate, as we've been looking here in First Peter, to come to this final section that deals with love. If you'll remember that Peter began his epistle, he's writing to a group of suffering Christians, those who are... Enduring the hostility of the world because of their desire to live righteously, to live as Christians in this world. And he's encouraging them. And so he spends the first 10 verses or 9 verses from 3 down to verse 12. Reminding them of the greatness of the glory of their salvation, of our salvation that we have in Christ. And it is laying hold of... The wonder of what we have been redeemed to, namely this kingdom that is coming, the salvation that is in Christ, the salvation that is ours by grace. By laying hold of those truths, we find strength to live in the world that does not love the same things that we love and hold as dear the same things that we hold dear and in fact opposes them. After laying out these glories for us in verses 3 through 12, he began in verse 13 to apply it more directly by reminding us that we are to fix our hope completely on this grace that is to be brought to us. By fixing our hope completely on this grace to be brought to us, we are to walk in holiness. This holiness is to be marked by a fear for God and an understanding of the great cost of our redemption. Namely, that we've not been redeemed with silver or gold or perishable things like that, any earthly thing But with precious lamb, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, with the blood of Christ. And then after such wonderful and glorious call to holiness, he now comes to this final section of this chapter 1, and he calls us to love. He calls us to love. And indeed... The overarching principle of the passage we'll look at this morning is this, that salvation demands the pursuit of love and spiritual growth. These things are inextricable, and they're inextricable from the reality of holiness. So these two commands that we'll look at, one this week and one next week, or the two commands that Peter gives us are this, namely that we are to love one another and we are to long for spiritual growth. As I mentioned, we'll look at the first of these this morning. So let's get right to it. If you'll begin with me in verse 22 of chapter 1, I'll actually read down to verse 3 of chapter 2. And then we'll swing back around and look at it more closely. Verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Look back up at verse 22, and let's note what will occupy us this morning. The command to love. The command to love. The command to love comes in the middle of verse 22 where he says that we are to fervently love one another from the heart. That is an imperative, it's a command, it's something that we are to do. And it forms the centerpiece of this section in verses 22 through 25. Everything that precedes it and everything that follows is centered and grounded in this one command that we are to love one another fervently from the heart. He looks at this command from two different sides. From the human side and from the divine side. From the human side, he looks at the action of us as believers. Namely, that you having purified your souls for this sincere love of the brethren. And then next, in verse 23, he'll look at the divine side. This purifying faith is, in fact, a result of having been born again. Having been born again by the living and abiding Word of God. So love for the brethren is an essential aspect of our repentance toward and faith in Jesus Christ, and our repentance and ability to love is made possible by God's gift of spiritual life through His Word. So both our faith and our hope in Christ, as well as the reality of our spiritual life in the promises of God, find a common center in this, fervently love one another from the heart. Now, this is no surprise to us. That love is so central to Peter's command here in light of these great realities of salvation. Love is, in fact, essential to God's nature. God is, what? Can you finish it? God is love. That's 1 John 4, chapter 6. Love is, is an essential part of his very nature. And therefore, it would be an essential part of those who share in his nature by the Spirit. Love is central to God's law. We usually think of law just in terms of do's and don'ts, those type of things, the whole Old Testament, the whole laid out detail of the law of God is actually an expression, a detailed expression of how we are to love God and to love our neighbor. Jesus summed up the whole of the law in this, that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your strength, with all of your mind, with all of your heart. And the second is what? You are to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the whole of the law, to love God and to love neighbor, to love others, and particularly here, to love the people of God. So put simply, behind this command is the reality that there is no reality of spiritual life where there is no love. That's put quite simply, that's the message of scripture in terms of How the reality of God's life works itself out in us and is demonstrated in us is that we love one another. So love for God and love for neighbor are bound to one another in a way that cannot be separated. The goal and the end of our obedience is to love the brethren. And that is the ultimate expression and proof of our love to God. This, again, has been central not only in the Old Testament, this command to love, but it's central throughout the New Testament, which is where we more commonly think of it, is Christ's commands that we are to love one another. Let me just, in introducing this command, uh, take you through a brief tour. Of these passages that you're well familiar with, familiar with, but uh, come from the lips of Jesus and from his uh, ...prophets, his writers of scripture. So just read with me. I'll uh, follow along with me. In John 15, he says this. This is my commandment... ...that you love one another... ...just as I have loved you. Now before that, he just said... ...if you keep my commandment, you'll abide in my love. I've kept my Father's commandments... ...abide in His love. He's spoken these things for our joy. And he sums up the essence of His commandments to us... ...in this, this singular commandment... ...that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. Verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. He says the same thing previously he did in chapter 13, verse 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. One another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Romans 12, he says this, he sums it up in a similar way. After laying out the great glories of the gospel, he says, in applying these great glories to the life of his people, he says in verse 10, be devoted to one another, Romans 12:10. in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Says the same thing in chapter thirteen, verses eight through nine. O, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And this goes on. And on and on. Love is the commandment of the gospel and the fruit of obedience to Christ and the reality of spiritual life. Indeed, it's impossible then to legitimately claim love for God and not have a love for the brethren, not have a love for other Christians, not have an obedient love for his people. If someone claims to love God, and does not love their brethren, that claim is hollow. It is empty. It has no spiritual reality to it. It is an empty profession of faith. Let me just read to you one verse. Uh, this this has a lot of applications in terms of discipling one another and counseling one another. This this particular truth comes up quite a bit. But just listen, let me read it to you. It's out of 1 John 4.20. He says, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child, implied there, born of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. Why is love for our brother demonstrated by love for God and observing His commandments? Because God's commandment to us is what? Love one another, to love the brethren. And so when we love the brethren, we are demonstrating, in fact, our love for God. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. In other words, to love the brethren, then, in this context, is not a burden. It is, in fact, the expression of the reality of our heart, the deepest longing of our heart. Let me put it negatively. To not love the brethren, for us not to love one another, is sin. For us not to forgive one another sincerely from the heart is sin. For us not to seek to treat one another with kindness is sin. For us not to be tender-hearted towards one another is sin. The, all of these are expressions of the reality of love. So if you go your way out of your way to avoid immorality, if you guard your eyes from everything that's impure if you go out of your way to not use foul language and only have speech that doesn't swear and model the world, if you read your Bible and pray because you don't want to be lackadaisical in the spiritual disciplines, and if you do all of these things but you don't actively pursue love for one another, then it is to have missed the mark of spiritual life. Paul said the same thing, didn't he, in 1 Corinthians 13. If you give your body to be burned, if you speak in the tongues of angels, if you do all these incredible things, but you don't have love, then you have what? What does he say? Remember? He said, you have nothing. You have nothing. Love is at the very heart of what it means to know God. It's what what it means to know God. Therefore, to not love the brethren is to miss the mark of holiness. So the first thing that Peter's going to point us to here is that the command that we are to love our brethren as an expression of our salvation and our hope in Christ. Now, let's look at this love and consider it. Having given us the command, I want to look for the remainder of the message at four aspects of this love. Four aspects of this love. Namely, and I was just on a roll with C's, so uh, forgive me. I'm going to try to make them all fit. But here's the four aspects of love. The condition of love, the character of love, the company of love, and the continuity of love. I'll repeat those. The the condition of love, the character of love, the company of love, and the continuity of love. Of course, those are all under the command of love. Uh, I'm so thankful for the source. Let's look first here at verse 22. The condition of love. Look at what he says at the beginning of the verse. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. So Peter begins and introduces this command to love by looking at the human side. And essentially he's referring here to our faith in the gospel, our repentance and faith in the gospel. That's right at the beginning, since you have an obedience to the truth. The truth here is simply another way to speak of the gospel that was preached to them and that was preached to us. Just to give you an example of this in Galatians two five the gospel is uh, he refers to the gospel as the truth of the gospel in ephesians one thirteen the message of truth the gospel of your salvation in Colossians one five the word of truth the gospel in James one eighteen simply the word of truth that is the way that Peter is using it here. you could then by intention and implication say since you have in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren. That is the message he just said was preached by those sent to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven in verse 12. It is the word which was preached to you at the end of verse 25, which they have believed. It is the message of the gospel. And their obedience to the truth marked then their faith in this message, their turning to Christ. Our turning to Christ was, in fact, obedience to the truth. And just as a little side note here, the gospel is not a suggestion. The gospel is a command that comes from heaven. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is a command of God. To not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is disobedience. And so, therefore, our faith in Christ can aptly and rightly be uh, identified under the title of obedience or that of obedience. Obedience to the gospel is faith in the gospel. It is trust in Christ. Now, that's repeated in many places. Let me just read to you one. To give you how that's uh, stated. He says in Romans 1.5 is in fact that he identifies it in that way. Romans 1.5. Don't turn there. Let me just read it to you. He says, Through whom we have received, referring to their faith in Christ, the grace of apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. And so Peter is laying down as the condition of our love for one another the reality of our obedience to Christ and coming to faith in him and believing the gospel. Obedience is not limited to initial faith in the gospel, but that same obedience that remarks the reality of salvation, faith in Christ as Lord, is the basic posture of heart that marks a true believer, obedience to the truth obedience to the truth the very beginning of our life is obedience to the gospel of christ and it is something that we do it is something that we do he he puts this for those who are interested in an active voice that means he's laying the the action of this obedience on us us who have responded We are the ones who've responded in obedience. We are the ones who heard the message and believed in faith. We are the ones then who repented and turned away from sin. Those are all actions that we had to do. We had to obey the word that we heard. Now, for all of our Calvinist friends here, then we would say, well, isn't that something that is a gift of God? And the answer to that is yes. Peter's not saying our faith or our obedience was the ultimate means of being purified, as if life could come out of death, as if light could come out of darkness, as if purity and impurity could come out of impurity and enslavement to lust. Now that's clear in other places. But here in this passage, he is looking it through the lens of human responsibility in response to the message. Now, he's going to say next from the divine side and say, well, that ability to respond was, in fact, because God first did a work in you by giving you life. You who were foreknown, you who were chosen, you were who adopted in Christ before the foundation of the world. So scripture looks at this from two different lenses, but here he's looking at it through the lens of our responsibility to respond to the gospel in obedience. And so he's looking at it from the human side. The human side. As a matter of fact, let me just give you one passage here that kind of brings us together a bit. He says in Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.30, By his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He repeats something similar in verse 11 of chapter 6. But some of, such were some of you, that is those marked by a life of sin... But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So there was response of faith in the message and yet that faith was in fact a fruit of the prior work of God in the heart. But here he's looking at it from the advantage point of our obedience to Christ. Our obedience to the gospel was in fact a purifying of our souls from our souls. And so he's emphasizing here the result of that internally of our obedience and he refers to it as being purified of your souls, purified in your souls. What does he mean here? And how does this connect with love? Let me just just quickly note here. This term purity is actually used, it's a verb, he uses it two times or seven times in the New Testament. Uh, several of those times, most of them, I think it was about four, are referred to ceremonial cleaning. So in other words, the Jews, before they would come to the Passover, they purified themselves. They, that kind of idea. It's also used, however, to refer to a moral purity of heart. A putting away of sin internally in sincere obedience to God. So James uses it that way when he says this. The calling these his readers to repentance, he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's that internal moral, uh, inner purity, moral purity that comes as we gaze on the glory of Christ and the hope of heaven. That's 1 John 3.3. 3. Those who have this hope fixed on him purify themselves even as he is pure. That's how Peter means it here. That response to the gospel, an obedient response of repentant faith to the gospel, was by that faith and repentance a moral purifying of our souls, of our whole lives. It was a whole inward turning to Christ. It was a putting away of the ruling power of sin that previously characterized our life to embrace Christ and to embrace the gospel in all that it was. Purified from what? Purified from what? Well, here in relation to the sincere love that is to be the fruit of this purification, the end of it, it is purified from all of those things that marked our lives and marks those who are outside of Christ that cause a failure to love one another. So, Paul mentioned it earlier in Romans 13, but the whole of the Ten Commandments forms the negative side of the failure to love one another. The tendency of fallen man to dishonor God, dishonor parents, steal, lie, murder, covenant, all of those covet are a failure to love. What characterized our life outside of Christ? Well, I won't read all of these lists. But let me just read to you some of these lists. In Galatians 5. You're familiar with them. What were we purified from? Well, the deeds of the flesh, which are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. At some level, those are What marked the life of those who are outside of Christ? Those are the deeds of the flesh. Let me give you one more Romans 1. I won't read all of them I have here. But Romans 1, he says this What is the mark of a people given over? He says they are filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That's a pretty comprehensive list. Repentance and faith in the gospel is to say that those things that characterize my life in which I lived with a selfish pursuit of those things that were to my own advantage regardless of whatever it cost those around me is repented of. And when Christ is embraced, what is embraced with him is the end to love others. So purity of soul is the condition of love in this way. It brings about the freedom from sin that causes enmity between people. Hostility. That's why right after this, what we'll look at next week, he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Those things that divided you, those things that caused for the destruction of others, those things that were to the ruin of the soul, you put them all away when you came to faith in Christ. You're to put them all away as you pursue growth in Christ. Now, I just want to mention this briefly. How are we to understand this? I think this, this causes a bit of confusion because some who are even yet unbelieving can hear that list and the other list that we could read and go, Well, uh, doesn't really characterize me. I don't see myself as full of envy, murder, strife, outburst of anger, dissensions, gossips, and all of those things. As a matter of fact, I was a pretty good person. Now, in fact, what, what came to my mind particularly is uh, this week was this. Some of you all know that Charles Krauthammer died recently, and beloved political commentator. And if you listen to those who eulogized him all across uh, the TV, uh, one of the things, there's a few things that came up consistently. One is how he was a kind person. He was a kind person. He was a civil person. And actually in that whole world was one who stood out by the way that he treated others with honesty and integrity. He was also brilliant intellectually. But it was his character towards others that marked uh, the impact that he had on so many. And so he's affectionately remembered uh, for all of these things. So did Charles Krauthammer and people like Charles Krauthammer need to purify themselves? For a sincere love of the brethren? What indeed did they need to purify them some? In fact, there are many unbelievers who act more loving and gracious and are kind than a lot of those who name the name of Christ, right? We know that. It's sad, but it's true. So in what way then would someone like him, so beloved by many and maybe those that we know, have to purify their souls for a sincere love of the brethren? Does that apply to everybody, even the good and the kind who are characterized by those things in their life? And the answer is yes. And let me give you at least just two reasons here. Briefly, you know them. The first is this. He didn't do that perfectly, right? There is sin yet that needs to be atoned for. If you call your brother Raka, fool, then you have broken the commandment not to murder because the seed form that eventually ends in murder, for those who go that far, is inherent in the same kind of hostility that would belittle a brother made in the image of God by calling them a fool out of anger. That's the idea. So there is sin, yet, even in those whom we see with a relative goodness in relation to others who have fallen short of the perfect holiness of God, there needs to be atonement. They need to be sprinkled with His blood. Number two, and this is going to get more to the point we'll address again later, He's not calling us here to a general attitude of love toward others. Yes, that will be a fruit, but look at what he says Purified your souls for a sincere love of who? The brethren. The brethren. He's particularly saying here that in repentance and in trust in the gospel, in trust in Christ, there is created in those who are true believers a love towards other Christians. And there is within every Christian a particular obligation toward those who name the name of Christ. That is different than our obligation to the world. Now we'll come back to that later. But here he's saying, you have purified your souls then for a sincere love of the brethren. And let me make one more note on this. And I really want to rush to the end here, uh, but not go too fast. This is a concept that I would suggest, and we, we know this. This is a concept, what Peter is driving at here in all of scripture, really, that is foreign to probably most of us here in this room and American Christianity, The idea in terms of how we are usually presented with the gospel is this. It's all about my individual relationship with the Lord. And that is true. You must repent. You are individually responsible to believe the gospel. You are accountable as an individual before God. Absolutely. You are accountable for the effort you put into your sanctification. You are accountable to your obedience to Christ. However, it's more than that. When we were saved, we were saved into the body of Christ. We were saved into the family of God. Our obligations towards Christ do not terminate with us as individuals, but on our service and love to those who name the name of Christ. We generally don't think about salvation in that term. That's why people can kind of go to church or not go to church. That's why people can commit or not commit. That's why people can kind of hide out and do their own thing and say, I listen to sermons online and that's my Christianity and occasionally I'll drop in and grace some congregation with my present as it suits me. That is not what it means to be saved. To be saved is to be saved into the body of Christ with all of the privileges, responsibility and accountability to live that out in our lives. You have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. So this then is the second point, the company of love. The company of love. The end of it, he uses a construction here that says, where he says for, is saying the purpose of, you could uh, interpret it that way, the purpose of this obedience of, to Christ, to the gospel, to purify our souls is to the end that we would obey the command to love the brethren. To love the brethren. So the embrace of salvation in Christ. Is an embrace of all of those who belong to him as well. Again it's not a general attitude of love. It includes that. But it is a particular and unique love. For those who are in Christ. In fact. Jesus as you remember. In John 13 we read it earlier. Says it is that particular love. That we have for one another. That marks our witness to the world. It's distinct. It's different. We have a care and a concern for one another that is marked as unique among the family of God. Now, just I want to illustrate this, because I think it's important enough to, to do this. I wasn't sure if I'd take the time, but, and I'll just mention this briefly. But I want to give you an example of what, what does this mean practically. What does this mean practically? Let me give you one example from Scripture. It's this. Now, you'll remember in First Corinthians 10... 1 First Corinthians. First Corinthians 10, Paul is addressing this sort of moral conflict, this spiritual conflict that some of the believers had living in a pagan society. Right? So there was food that was offered to idols, and some saw this food as contaminated, they couldn't take any part in it, and others said, hey, that food is just food, it's a lot cheaper when you sell it on the market after it sat before a statue for a little while, I'm going to do it and enjoy it, I get steak for half the price. But some believers were bothered by that because they saw that as still being contaminated again by having been food that was offered to an idol. And so Paul gives a, a, a situation here. He says, if, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you go, want to go to eat anything, that is, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols. In other words, this is the believer he's talking about whose conscience is bothered by the fact that he knows where that meat came from. Maybe they were a new believer. Maybe they were just saved out of that. And they're hypersensitive to those kind of things. So now you think about this. This is an evangelistic situation, isn't it? What would most of us say? Most of us would say, we'd say to the believer, Hey man, get over it. It's just it. We're going to witness to this guy. We're going to tell him about Jesus, right? And then we'd go ahead and eat the food so as not to offend the unbeliever. But Paul goes in exactly the opposite direction. If you know that your brother's confident or conscience is going to be bothered, he says this, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. In other words, he says, look, you're in an evangelistic situation. Somebody puts wine on the table. In that case, you know, that would be more modern. Or something else that is offensive to them. His point is, offend the unbeliever, but do not offend a fellow brother in Christ. Why? The priority of your love is for that believer, not for the unbeliever. Now, that's very different than the way that we usually think, but that's exactly the way that God instructs us. And that's what Peter is pointing to here. He says, You have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. The company and the focus intentionally of our love is to be those who are within the church. That means then that we give one another the preference. We prefer one another. We prefer one another over other things. Now, what is the character of this love? What is the character of this love? Uh, He says, he describes it in several ways here. He says it is uh, fervently love one another from the heart. He says it is to be unhypocritical. So it's fervent, it's unhypocritical, and it's from the heart. So he's not calling us just to specific actions. He's not even calling us necessarily to deeds of love, specific deeds or some kind of religiosity. The command he's giving here cuts to the intention of the heart. One I think captured this well. It says the love that Peter has in view is neither a warm fuzzy feeling nor friendships around a coffee pot after worship. It refers to righteous relationships with each other that are based on God's character which Christian behavior reflects. It is a commitment that we have to one another that goes deeper than mere friendship, that goes deeper than mere preference for somebody's personality or likability. It is a love that is to reflect the character of God and of Christ himself. And he describes it in different ways. It is with sincere or without hypocrisy. That means it's not merely outward form. It's not merely with words. First John 3.18 says, Let us love not with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. But even though we can love in deed and truth in terms of actions, it is the internal reality that God is the most concerned about. It is without hypocrisy. It is from the heart. It is motivated out of internal spiritual reality. That means then that it's a love, as we mentioned earlier, that truly forgives. Not merely in word, but with inward commitment. It means that when we forgive one another, we do so unhypocritically. We don't say, I forgive you, just to save face. But it means we are committing our heart to release them from that sin. To not hold it against them. To not hold on to it in resentment in our heart. To not hold on to it with a repeated hatred that leads to bitterness of heart and division among relationships. That's why when we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded if you have anything in your heart that is held against another, now is the time to deal with that. Otherwise, we would come to the table in an unworthy manner. Without hypocrisy means this. That we can rejoice truly in the success of another without hidden resentment of envy and jealous jealousy. We can actually rejoice in those who receive blessings that we want for ourselves, but maybe God has denied them. Without a, without a heart of envy towards them, without a heart of resentment, without a heart of jealousy. It means without hypocrisy that we do our acts of service and follow through as they're needed and we don't stop once it becomes inconvenient. It is without hypocrisy. He captures that in the next one too. It's to be fervently fervent. We love one another fervently. This adverb is used two times in the New Testament, actually. Uh, One time to refer to how Christ prayed fervently in the garden before his crucifixion. It was with intensity. And it's used another time in Acts to refer to the group that was praying for Paul when he was in prison. It's love that seeks to do good, it's self-denying and cannot abide with self-love. You cannot have a self-love, as an, as can, self-love cannot have a grip on your affections and you obey this command, or me, which I'll actually illustrate in a set. One captured it this way, it is self-love that contracts the heart, shuts out all other loves, both of God and man, save only so far as our own interest carries, and that is still, still self-love. This means then that we can't simply love when it's convenient. It means that our love is not to the least measure that our conscience feels okay we did our duty. It means that we love with the full intention and desire to see another cared for even when it comes at personal cost of honor, time, and resources. Now, uh, an example of this would be yesterday there was an act of service done for somebody in the church by two men, should I mention them? I won't. They think may be embarrassed, but who gave up time and resources because they knew of a need in the church, and so they spent their day to make sure that this need was met. They were in fact preoccupied until this need was met. Uh, in order to help meet this need, I was called uh, in the afternoon, in the middle of things I was doing, to go help because there was uh, it was heavy, and you know, so. So I was called, and my first reaction was, I'll be honest, I was irritated, because I had what I was doing, and it was inconvenient. As a matter of fact, I even said on the phone, ashamedly, I said, I'll come if you need me, but it's not very convenient. It's pretty sad for the pastor, isn't it? But I did, and I immediately repented of that, and I came right here and said, oh Lord, please forgive me, and I went through a very specific list of my selfishness and spent the car ride over asking him to show me all the areas where selfishness is hidden in my heart. And there other things came up that I won't share. <laughs> but the point is this. The point is this. Is the example that was the positive example there were these two brothers who gave up their time. They were going to do whatever it took to meet the need of somebody else in the church. And I was convicted by that and given an example and that's what he's talking about here, that we fervently love one another from the heart. We don't love when it's convenient. We don't love just when it's easier, when it comes with no cost. It means that we love one another regardless of what it requires from us. And it is a commitment. It is something that we commit to one another before Christ. Let me note lastly here then, it, make sure that we have time, is the continuity of love. The continuity of love. So the command is that we love one another. That this one another specifically refers to the love that we have to one another as Christians. This love that we have to one another as Christians is specifically a fruit, even the aim of our faith in Christ. Our obedient, repentant faith in Christ. It is to be from the heart... It is to be sincere. It is not to be hypocritical. Only for the eyes of others to see. For God sees the emptiness of that. And now he's going to switch over. That's the human side. And he begins at verse 23. By looking at the divine side. And he unfolds for us. Which is not something that is not at first uh, uh, easily apparent. Or it wasn't to me. But is absolutely quite glorious. Look at verse 23. He says. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Peter now turns, as I said, from the human side of our obedience to the gospel and to love one another to the divine source of both. The divine source of the obedience to the truth that he mentioned earlier. And namely, it is this. The manifestation of life Generated by the spiritual energy of the Spirit working through the Word. The fruit, the love that, uh, or the fruit that this love is demonstrating is the fruit of those who have received life from God. I mentioned earlier that when he says have you have purified your souls, that's an active voice. That means that they are the ones who've done it. You are the ones who've done it. You believed. You repented. Now when he says born again, he uses it as a passive voice. In other words, this is something that was done to us. This is something we received. He's already established at the very beginning... In verse 3, that it's God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's something that God did. God did it. We received that work of God, namely of his regenerating power. Now he highlights this reality once again. And by saying this and bringing this in here, he's also undergirding the reality that we who have been born again have been born again into a family. So he's undergirding the reality that it is to a specific family. It is to a love of the brethren. But he introduces another concept here, and namely it's that of its connection to Scripture. The connection of the new birth to Scripture. Now this leads to two questions that I want to ask and answer for us here to get at what he's saying. The first is this, in what way is Scripture the cause of new life? In what way is Scripture the cause of new life? The second question is this, how does this fit, this, this explanation of the enduring nature of Scripture fit with Peter's command to love? It can at first glance seem a little bit disjointed, but it is anything but that. Let's note first, in what way is Scripture the cause of new life? Well, we need to first remember that natural man unaided by the Spirit of God, will always reject the truth. Always. Every time, will not repent, will not receive the truth in this kind of purifying faith and of obedience to the truth that he mentioned earlier. To the natural man, 1 Corinthians 2.14, could you say it with me? The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually appraised. In other words, there is a spiritual reality in the truth of God and in the words of God that a natural man, unaided by the Spirit of God, simply cannot comprehend. There's no spiritual organ within them or capacity to understand the truth in a believing way. In a way that causes the soul to say, Yes, the Christ that is presented in Scripture is the Christ that I will give up everything to gain. That the Christ who is presented in Scripture is the Christ that is that glorious and that wonderful and that much of a treasure in whom are hidden all the wisdom and the treasures of God that I would lose everything to gain. The natural man doesn't do that. Many of us heard the gospel preached long before we actually received it, right? I did. Trish did. Others did. We heard the gospel, but it was not connected within us with any kind of conviction that caused us to turn from our wicked ways I heard the gospel and loved my sin and it was the same with you many of you so it's not it's not something that just came out from within us this new birth you were dead in trespasses and sin I won't go there John 8 I'm just going to reference it but he says to these leaders why can you not hear my word His answer is, is because I speak the truth and you are of your father, the devil, who's a liar from the beginning. Whenever he speaks, he speaks from his own nature and he speaks lies that you'll believe. But the truth you will not believe. Why? Because you're not of mine. And so that's every unbeliever. Many hear the words of scripture and the testimony of Christ and leave unchanged, unaffected and unbelieving. So what does he mean here? It's only when the Word of God is aided by God's Spirit that the message of the words of Scripture become the means out of which life is brought forth. And it works together in some mysterious way wherein the words and the truth of Scripture and of the Gospel are attended with the power of the Holy Spirit within a person such that the response is life and faith and obedience to the truth and embracing of Christ. That's the idea here. Let me let me borrow somebody else's words I think explain this well. The testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason, for as God alone is a fit witness of himself and his word, so also the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. So the word and the Spirit are so intimately bound that the gift of life by the Spirit cannot be separated from the ministry of the Word, so that it is the Spirit who gives life, and He gives this life corresponding to faith in the truth of the Scripture. There's mystery there, but that is the way it is presented to us. One kind of captures this inward. This is my last quote, but I thought he did well. The inward experience of this. He says this. The word brought within the soul by the spirit lets it, meaning the soul, see its own necessity and Christ's sufficiency and convinces it thoroughly and causes it to cast over itself upon him that is Christ for life. And this is the very begetting of it again to eternal life. So that means this. When he says, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but through the living and enduring word of God. That means at a point in time when you heard the gospel or remembered the gospel that was preached to you. The spirit of God so attended those words with power that it overcame the natural spiritual death and produced in you life that embraced Christ as he was presented in scripture and gave everything to have him. That's the idea. That's the idea. How all that works together is ultimately satisfied only in the mind of God. But it is to say that this word came to us who know Christ with power such that by the spirit of God and God's plan, this word produced in us life. It produced in us life. Let me just really quickly give you a way that Jesus put this. Obviously, there's a lot more to say on this, but let me me just let you hear it this way. Uh, Jesus said when he's talking about uh, the father drawing people. He's saying And he's explaining in John chapter 6. He's explaining why are some seeing his miracles and hearing his words and not believing. Why is that? He explains it. Those who are given to me by the father will come to me. He says later after a, a, uh, uh, many things he says on that. But he says in verse 63. He says this. And this is in response to those who said this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Jesus says Look. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Simon Peter later said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Encapsulated in the very words of Christ and in the words of Scripture is... The truth that leads to eternal life. And it is a life that comes through an embracing of that truth. Which is in itself a result of the spirit of God who gives life. So that he gives life through the words of scripture. So how are those things connected? Because the spirit attends him with power. Now let me ask you this question. How do you hear God's words? How do you hear them? Are they words of life Words of hope, words of authority, words of glory? Are they words that bear little or no power in your soul more than any other words? Can you read the Bible or another book with the same effect for both? Can you have as much spiritual and a power and authority from a book about the Bible or a book that has moral virtues as you do from the very words of Scripture? For a believer, it's not so. For a believer, there is a unique power in the word of God that satisfies the soul like nothing else can. Do you see in Scripture the words of God and the voice of Christ? Mere religion, mere knowledge, or even assent and belief in Scripture alone is not saving, nor do those things alone affirm life. The Pharisees affirmed every word of the Old Testament, and then some. That was the problem. It is scripture that is embraced and loved and longed for and rested in as the words of the living God that are bread and food to our souls. That, that is what it means then to be born again by the living word. And that's the relationship that believers have with the word. So question number two then. He's focusing here on the eternal nature of Scripture. So the second question is this. What is the connection then between the word of God and the command to love? How does all of that fit in then with the command to love? Noted, he said, he began this verse with four. He's explaining this. He's explaining how this is coming about. For you have been born again, again, not of seed which is perishable but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God simple answer is this, Peter is marking the enduring nature of love as the fruit of the life that was brought into being through the living word. Let me say it another way. Love is bound to our faith in the gospel of Christ, and faith in the gospel of Christ is bound to God's gift of life through the living and abiding word. So the eternal nature of our love is equal to the eternal nature of the word by which we were given life and brought to the obedience of faith. That's the comparison that he's making here. That's the connection. Notice what he says. You were not born again from seed, which is perishable. And here's the connection. It might just, sorry if this offends your sensibilities. But the the connection he's making here, the parallel is this. The imperishable seed is the human seed that creates human life. Okay? There's a seed and there's an egg. The seed meets with the egg. Life comes forth and that's where all of us come from. And it fills the world. He's saying that is a perishable seed. Sperma is the idea. There's a perishable seed which brings forth perishable things. That brings forth perishable life. Every life that comes into this world is ultimately going to end. It's not going to last forever. But there is another seed here that he attaches to the word of God. And he says it is imperishable. It is imperishable. The life that is brought forth by the seed of the word of God will never end. It will never cease to endure. It is eternal life. And that's the idea. That's the comparison that he's making here. Human seed produces human results, natural life, and even in its most glorious is temporary and destined to perish. Human seed produces Kings and queens and kingdoms and every manner of earthly glory. Everything that impresses the kingdom of men. All of the pomp and the splendor of the nations. In their context, they would think of Assyria, Babylon. In their current context, Rome, which was the glory of all of the earth. He's saying those things will perish. We might say the kingdom of America if we could look at it in that way, with all of its wealth and its power and its privilege and its esteem and its honor among the nations is a kingdom that is from perishable seed and will perish. It doesn't endure. Babylon lays in ruins. Assyria was defeated. Rome fell. Their glory cannot endure. Again, just to make it more personal, I was thinking along these lines of Crowdhammer who again, by all accounts, was a very wonderful man and extremely powerful intellect. That was said by all. But with all of these accolades and honor that go on and on, one one thought kept striking me. He'll be forgotten after a week. Oh, they'll do some reruns. They'll play his words again. But you know what? Life goes on. Life goes on. Who's going to remember him? His family, his friends. But he'll be forgotten. Other articles will come. Other voices will come with power, and they too will fall away, and they will end. Nothing in this world, in this present age, is to last and will last. It will be destroyed. And the contrast he's making here is with imperishable seed of the word. The imperishable seed of the word, which produces faith in Christ and life and love for the brethren, is something that will never perish never perish it's as eternal as the word of god itself and then look what he says verse 24 he says this for all flesh is like grass all its glory like the flower of grass the grass withers the flower falls off but the word of the lord endures to ever let me give you just another observation here which would be a particular encouragement to us and to his original readers and it's this peter is here drawing from the old testament you can tell by the way it's written He's drawing from the Old Testament, particularly he's drawing from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 marks a transition in the book of Isaiah. And this transition is that he's speaking now no longer to a people whom he's warning of captivity, the coming Babylonian empire. But now he's promising them deliverance from that captivity. So he's speaking to a people whom he's going to deliver. He's speaking prophetically to a generation who will hear these words and know they are the generation that he's speaking of. God will deliver his people. God who is not like the gods of the nations who fall. God who is not like the God of the idols who are nothing, a mere breath, the creation of man's hand. But the God who created all things through whom all of the earth is like dust in the scales for him who created the stars. And so he's reminding them to encourage them that God's promise will stand. The kingdoms which sound seem so powerful now are kingdoms that will fall. The kingdoms that destroyed Jerusalem will fall and Jerusalem will be restored because I, your God, have commanded it and I have promised it. Now imagine this. Remember, he's writing to a people who are suffering. And the particular way then that they would have heard this and that we hear this is this. That all of the kingdoms that seem to have so much glory, the suffering now that we have through various trials, he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, the suffering he's talking about later in chapter 4 and throughout the book of First of Peter, uh, Peter being maligned, being persecuted, being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, persecuted for the name as a Christian, all of those persecutors will also fall. Their glory is temporary. So those suffering because of faith in Christ, because of your participation in the New Covenant, in Christ's blood, because of righteousness, God reminds us to persevere in love. And that's really where he's going. Persevere in loving one another. Persevere in your obedience of faith to Christ, your obedience to the truth. Persevere in these things. Why? Because that's what lasts forever. That's what marks Participation in the eternal kingdom of God. That's the idea. That's the idea. Every promise in the kingdom of heaven is yes and amen in Christ. One said it this way. This too shall pass, Peter says to Christians discouraged by hostile society. These trials that you have now will pass. These temptations that you have now will pass. Pass. These fears that you have now will pass. The things that you suffer now will pass. But what will not pass is God's kingdom and God's word. So persevere in love. Persevere in obedient love. Persevere in your faithfulness to the gospel. Don't be discouraged by all that would attack it. And let me tell you, this is particularly precious to those who are suffering persecution Because that means when we go out into the world, we're not a friend of the world. Sometimes we get too friendly. But when we come together, whatever we endure outside of the the world, we come together as the people of God to love one another, to encourage one another, to uphold hands that are weak, to instruct those who are erring, to call them back. That's the way that the love is to work out among the brethren. Sunday morning should be a respite for us who are spending every other day out in the world. It should be a time to come when we go, yes, this is my family whom I love. And the promises of God are for all of us, and they are the promises that will endure. And my obedient love to Christ, manifesting my love for my brethren, is manifesting life that will last unto eternity. So, the p- centerpiece of this righteous living is the family of God, is our love for one another that reflects the life of Christ in us. Let me give you one verse, and this is what I'll close with. He, Paul captures this in 1 Corinthians 13. Let me just read the, the last verse 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because faith and hope will end, but love will never end. I hope that you know this love of God in Christ. Let's pray, and then we'll close. I'm sorry, I went a couple minutes over. Father, thank you for this, your commandment, and this, your word. I do thank you, and thank you for each soul here who demonstrates this reality in their life. May we encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near to walk in love and put our hope in the kingdom that will never end. And for those who don't know you, I pray that today may be the day by your grace of salvation. Amen. Now.